Good morning. You can take your Bibles and open up to Revelation 19, verse 11 this morning. Revelation 19. As you're turning, uh, just another word of uh, happy Father's Day Uh, to the fathers who are out there. Everyone here is a father or a son or a daughter. It's the way it works, despite some fighting in our culture. Um, Everybody has one. And uh, praise the Lord for you and uh, the fathers that are there this morning. I know it's a little more self-serving than Mother's Day since I am a father. Um, But it is... Uh, the value of a good and godly father is something that should not be understated. Um, thinking of the influence even of some friends of ours who recently had a, a son get married. And the fact that, you know, you start looking and you think, here's a young man who's 21, 22 years old, and he has a desire to get married. Why does he want to get married? Because he had a good father and a good mother and parents. And he said, family's a good thing. I saw family, and family's wonderful, and they want a family, they want to get married. So just be encouraged as you look towards that and uh, continue to strive. We're all imperfect, but um, knowing that the Lord has given the family and the Father as a good thing and the way that it reflects our own Heavenly Father um, and just the way that we, of course, are always working to reflect Christ in everything, even as we see here, um, in a way which we're not going to reflect Him uh, and that we can reflect Him in many ways, but this is His and His alone, which is when He is going to return and meet it out. Uh, We're going to see here, that you have Christ returning. He has a sword. You're going to see armies, but you're not going to see them with the sword. And so it's an interesting thing that we'll see this morning. Let's read together Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. We'll read our section and then we'll walk through it together. Continuing from the, the Hallelujah Chorus, as we called it last week, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. After this, in verse 11, then John, he saw... Heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sits on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, we're following him on white horses. And from his mouth come, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of strong men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. And then I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assemble to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army." And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who did the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Father, we come to this moment looking forward of the fulfillment of what we see over and over again, the promise of Christ's 
return. His return in judgment, which we see here and we have seen, awaiting the moment. And so even as the moment is introduced, as we saw in those first 10 verses of chapter 19 last week, there is a celebration in heaven that the time has come for Christ to return and to take back what is his. We've kind of been waiting as we've studied and read and looked and continued. And the moment is here. And so we rejoice recognizing that the glory is Christ and his alone. Help us this morning to even see the impact this should have on our own lives as we look towards the reality that Christ returns in judgment as a conquering king. And the part that we even get to play as part of that one day in the future of celebrating with him. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, this morning we reach the climax, the, the peak really of the book of Revelation. If you have different stories, you might find that in the exact middle of a story or the exact middle of a movie, or you might find it kind of in the second two-thirds of that story. And here we've kind of marched all the way through the book till we get, say, the 22 chapters. We're in chapter 19. And it's really not to that point until we get to this big tipping point where all of a sudden it's going to roll down the hill fast and furious, where everything kind of builds, builds, builds. He's coming, he's coming. Even in heaven it opens and and you have this moment where everyone's saying hallelujah, he's returning. And then this is the moment in time in history where he actually does return. Where John sees heaven open. And it's not just a vision of heaven, but it's actually Christ coming out of heaven. Everything's going to gain speed and momentum until you see a complete resetting. Like all good stories, what happens after the climax? Where you're going to see what you've been waiting for happen and unfold. And then you're going to see, well, what happens after that. And outside of the rebellion that we're going to see from Satan at the end of the millennium, which is just briefly addressed in Revelation, it's going to be reset and he's going to make all things right. But the big message here is Christ is returning and he is returning as a conquering king. And there's nothing really more clearly stated in your Bible than this truth over and over and over again. He's coming back to earth. It's going to be visible. That is, people are going to see it. You're not going to miss it. Think of book of First, Second Thessalonians. You're, you're not going to miss it. It's actually going to happen in time. It's a physical return. And ultimately, it'll be a glorious return. It's clearly referred in the scriptures over 1,800 times. Clearly, even perhaps more if you look at what are some inferences. But it's mentioned the return of Christ 23 in 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And out of 260 chapters in the New Testament, the second coming of Christ is mentioned 318 times. This is one of those truths that if you're paying attention, you can't miss and you're not supposed to miss. It's mentioned over and over and over and over as a way, not just for, oh, we're going to win, which is true, but to impact even the church to know your hope is sure. And we saw that over and over in the advice in the letters given to those seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. The return of Christ has practical implications for the church today and for the future church and for the tribulation saints even in the time of the great tribulation. During the lifetime of Christ in his first coming, he referred to his second coming 22 times. It's an emphasis because if we're left just with the death, 
and resurrection of Christ, we're still wondering, well, what's next? And the next thing, as we've seen, is the return of Christ in judgment, which is culminating here as he returns. And the visual here and the imagery, we're going to see the symbolism, is of a conquering king. Just like a Roman general would come in on a white horse and conquer. So Christ comes in on a white horse and he conquers. It's going to be not only the climax of this book, but really of all redemptive in human history. So we're going to look here at these 10 verses together this morning. And we're going to see, really, as we kind of back up a little bit, it's really the seventh bowl judgment that is now we're going back and further exploring how that is met out. There's different kind of action phases where we got an over, kind of, if you flip back to Revelation 14, actually, and you see a bit of an overview of the reaping of the earth's harvest. The last verse of chapter 14 is important, I think, because you're going to see the same imagery and even kind of asking the question of why is his robe bloodstained? And this idea of this picture of this wine press where verse 19, the angel swung his sickle to the earth, gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth, threw them into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 1600 stadia, which is about the distance of the nation of Israel. It is to say this is a picture of one doing traditional uh, pressing of wine with their feet and the robe getting bloody. But then introduced is the sign in chapter 15 and chapter 16 of these finals. We had the seven seals and the seven trumpets and then, of course, the seven bowls. And in 16, we see that seventh bowl poured out in verse 17 of chapter 16, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the sanctuary from the throne. It is done. And there's flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty that the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell and Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of wine of the wrath of his rage. And you think how destructive it is? It's so destructive. Verse 20 says every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Flattened huge hailstones about one talent each and the response here as those hailstones come down and upon men, not repentance, but what we've seen over and over in the bold judgments particularly, it seems to be overarching by that point. They've seen all the other judgments. They're not going to repent. Rather, verse 21, the men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. But then you have what we've seen, 17 and 18, which kind of looks particularly at Babylon, the false religion, and then, of course, the fall of it economically— before it kind of pulls you back and gives you more detail on the final judgment, the battle we kind of commonly know is the battle of Armageddon. And that's here. It's hard to see too much chronology. And even if you see this as the, the supper of, of God later here, the great supper of God as it's called in verse 17, that seems to be before what most understand the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so don't think total chronology here, except for to say we are right back kind of to... How is it all going to be met out finally in that final seventh bowl, which culminates in the return of Christ? That is where we are here in this phase. And the first phase of the, the seventh bowl, at least that we have here, and we're going to look at three of them this morning, is this returning conqueror. And we don't have to look very far to know who it is. It's not said that it is Jesus, except for it uses every other word that we know refers to Jesus. You see names, the one who is called, verse 11, faithful and true. Name written on him, which no one knows except 
himself. Verse 13, his name is also called the word of God. Verse 16, the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So lest you be confused, he wants to make sure you know his name. Even if you don't know his name, he has a name that no one knows, it seems, as we'll see in verse 12. But this is the returning of the conquering king. It begins here by John looking towards heaven and heaven opening. Kind of imagine what that would look like. Like the springtime and you have the, the beauty of uh, kind of thunderstorms and clouds. And it just kind of you look up and every night just winter it's all dark. And now we kind of can see the clouds and things and the storms roll in. What would it look like for all of heaven to split open? Well he sees such a thing. It kind of reminds you of chapter 4 when he looks up and he sees a door. In chapter 4 John did. Standing open in heaven. And he's called then to go up to heaven. Yet here it's the opposite right? Heaven is coming down to him. And John fixes his eyes on what is most glorious, which is the rider, a white horse. Not the white horse that came in deception in chapter 6, but the white horse here, who is not deceptive, not false, but true. It says, verse 11, I saw heaven opened, a white horse who sits on it is called, he who sits on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and he wages war. He's about to receive the kingdom promised to him by his father. A white horse was the traditional horse that the conquering emperor would ride into the city. Even interesting as you think of why the prolonged nature of all these judgments or the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. You go, it's all confusing. Well, I understand, but it's always been a process. And then it kind of culminates in finally the king returning I read maybe a little bit of a silly analogy, but if you think of like the Macy Day Parade or um, those things where you have all the initial floats that come into town, um, that come in to New York, or if you have a parade during Christmas time around here, and it kind of culminates, you don't put Santa at the front, right? You put it at the end that he's arrived. That's kind of the idea here, the better idea of uh, the conquering king in Rome where they have these processions of celebrations, but it's culminated, it's finalized when everyone's ready for the return of the conquering general. Yes, the white horse symbolizes purity, blamelessness, truthfulness, but very symbolic that he is the king of kings, the one that is named clearly. The whole world has fallen for the false messiah, and this is compared to the one who is faithful and true. And he's even called, if you remember right, in the vision in chapter 1 that he is faithful. That he is faithful to his promises. Um, I titled this that this, is, um, that this is promise kept. All those promises, those almost 2,000 promises that the Lord will return. This is the moment where, is he faithful? Is he true? And it is, yes, he is true. Think of your own life or people you know and they're trustworthy and they're faithful, they, they're on time. Well, there's, there's no one that this is more true and more appropriate for than Christ who is going to arrive precisely when it is ready. He is faithful to keep all of his promises. His promises are kept. And he's going to judge righteously. He's presented here as what we kind of think of as a king who is also a warrior. He's not sitting back and he's going to allow others to fight. No, he doesn't need others. He will fight. But yet he includes others as well. He continues to give the description in verse 2 of his eyes. Think back to the vision. If we look kind of chapter 1. Remember John's initial vision of, of Christ. His eyes that are of flaming fire. Nothing escapes his 
gaze. I hesitate. I know most people know the popular level of movies and Lord of the Rings and things and think of the Eye of Sauron, which is evil and wicked, yes. But the same idea of like, you can't escape his gaze. And of course, this is judgment here. If you're on the wrong side of this, you don't want to be caught in the midst of the eyes that see the sin that has not been met or cared for by the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. And so his eyes are flaming of fire and his head are of many diadems. The idea that he doesn't have one crown, but that he has many crowns. In fact, you could say he has all of the crowns. He is the righteous, conquering warrior and king. And he has a name, verse 12, that is written on him, which no one knows except himself. And there are those you want to ask, well, what is that name? And maybe it's just illegible or that he can't read it at that time. But it it seems that it is something that John does not know that we are not told and perhaps never will know. And I think I'm okay with that as I've read and studied because there are just some things that we'll never know. And that's okay because we're the creature and he is the creator. One of my favorite pastoral verses, mark it down. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things are the Lord. So if I don't know the answer, you're probably going to get that from me. And maybe it's a cop out, but I don't know everything. But the Lord does, including, it seems, this name that he knows, perhaps representing even his eternal sonship. Only he knows this name. And being clothed, verse 13, with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God, which kind of even looks back to where else is he called the Word, the Logos, which John himself, the writer of this, you see this same language. Of course, the Spirit revealed John 1, 1 to The Apostle John, and the same is here. The vision is revealed to John that he is also called the Word of God, which is a way in which if we wanted to look closer at John chapter 1, is saying that he is not only the Word that existed, but he is the revelation of God. We use words to reveal things, to say things, to communicate. This is God's communication. This is God's revelation of himself perfectly to humankind, which is Christ. He is the Word of God. God. He's the word of God dipped, it says, wearing this robe, a garment dipped in blood. Not the blood of the sacrifice, not the blood of, I don't think, the martyrs here, the blood of Calvary or such, but seemingly the context of judgment would be, this is back to chapter 14, that it is the blood that is coming, or even maybe the, think of symbolizing the blood that has been met out already in all the judgments. That is, you're wondering, who, what is this guy coming for? And you might look at someone, depending on the event, and you can kind of tell. If we had prom here in Gretna not too long ago, and you could tell who's going to prom and who's not going to prom. Just a little word of advice. Don't try to get your hair cut Friday before prom. I don't know it's prom. It's a very long wait. Because everyone's getting ready, right? And you kind of know you have the uniform. Well, this uniform is one that says he is not coming in a way to save. But this is judgment. This is scary. This is war. Which describes how he returns on this white horse in judgment that will be met out. And if you are his or you are with him, then you're like the first six verses of chapter 19. Hallelujah. You're saying salvation and glory, verse 1, and power belong to our God. So you're not afraid if you don't have a reason to be afraid. But if you do, 
and your sin has not been dealt with, then this is the kind of passage that does make you go, how do I deal with the sin? And you have to go back and look at, well, his first coming, that you deal, it's dealt with in what Christ has done for us, and that we put our trust in his sacrifice for us and him alone, and nothing of our own good deeds, but we look at what Christ has done. But here, this is, I believe, judgment described. The revelation of God coming in judgment. And he goes on in verse 14, describing the armies which are in heaven. And the scripture becomes important because who are these armies is the question. And it would seem they're clothed in fine linen. And who's been clothed in fine linen over and over again? It would be God's people. Whether it is the raptured church or the martyrs. It seems like they've been given the fine linen white and clean. That is, Christ has dealt with their sin. It's been imputed to him, and he bore it for them. And so they're clean now, and they're following him on white horses. If you look at uh, one place in Matthew 24, uh, is it just believers? It seems, maybe it's referring to believers here, just, but it seems also, you could say angels as well. It says that in Matthew 24, verse 30, that and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to another. Thinking, again, judgment is coming. The angels participate for sure. Whether they're part of the armies or not, I don't know, but I I do think it's at least for sure here speaking of those who are his that either have been coming down from heaven. And the armies of heaven, they're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. They're falling on his white horse, but they don't have the weapons. He doesn't need them there to fight. Rather, verse 15, the sword that was in his mouth from chapter 1, he's able to take that sword and it, says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations that he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God. We see it come out, these, these armies. If you go back to chapter 2, Revelation. And you even see some of the promises Chapter 2, verse 12 to Pergamum says, This is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antimus, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The same sword, ultimately, Christ will use to defend his people. And even, you see that, drop down to Thyatira, the same idea of what does it represent, the authority to those who are overcomers. Verse 25 of chapter 2, it says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. And he who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father, I and I will give him the morning Star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there seems to be that although it is Christ who has the sword, there's a way in which they're there with him. There's some authority that comes with those who come. 
that he shares with them that similar passage from 15 to chapter 2. And it concludes with verse 16 that he has on his garment, on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's kind of the, the catch of all, kind of catch-alls. He said all these things about Christ, who he is, how he appears. You want to know what he is, who he is. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He's the one who is in control and king over all. It's going to be a swift judgment, as indicated shortly. And you're going to see that it will then begin, which we won't see this morning we'll see next week the beginning of Christ's reign on earth. The thousand-year reign described as Satan is chained into the abyss. And it reminds me of this uh, they call it millennial uh, psalm. Psalm chapter 2, which says this in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord mocks them. Then he who speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And I surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. And then we've seen the same phrase, verse 9 of Psalm 2. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. Which is all moving to, this is the second psalm in, in all of the book. Think a book of worship. Even worship when you understand the authority, the kingship of Christ when he returns. He's going to instantly put down this rebellion and he is returning. As he treads out Revelation 19, the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. There at the end of verse 15. Same picture, if you look up, just as a cross-reference, Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. The same reference point of this idea of what it looks like, of the winepress picture. Then it culminates in Christ being king of kings. And Psalm 2 goes on to say in verse 10, So now, O kings, show insight, take warning, O judges of the earth. Which, of course, the context here is going to be, yes, the beast and the false prophet, but all the kings, especially the great kings at this moment. He's saying, so now, kings, show insight. Take warning, O judges of the earth. That is, learn from what you know and what you see. And serve, verse 11, Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Maybe the part you know best from verse 12, this idea of humble yourself, described in verse 12 as kiss the sun, as one would kiss the ring of an authority, of a, of a king. Kiss the sun, that is, show humility lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. This idea of James chapter 4. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The implication of looking at this future picture of the returning conqueror is humble yourself, humble yourself now while there is time, that you might be the ones with him rejoicing and not be on the other side of him. And so the returning conqueror is the first phase of the seventh bowl of judgment described here. Along with then in verse 17, the second phase of this great supper of God. Which is in contrast to what we've seen as a celebration supper. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 17 says, Then I saw an angel 
standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in midheaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings, and the flesh of the commanders, and the flesh of the strong men, and the flesh of the horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men, slaves, and small and great. And if you're kind of going, well, this is, sounds terrible, again, Lots of revelation is meant to sound terrible because it is terrible. It's, this is the reality of what is coming. And it's meant to warn because there's even something worse than this defeat, which is going to be kind of previewed by the beast and the false prophet cast into an eternal lake of fire. Fear the one who not only can kill the body, right? But ultimately has judgment over the soul. So it's a vivid picture Everyone is judged. We've seen the same phrase, small and great, before in Revelation. Everyone is coming under judgment. And then he sees the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war with him who sits on the horse and with his army. For whatever reason, they think this is the moment where they're going to say, maybe there's a path forward. Maybe we can defeat, even though you just imagine at this point, how can you be so deceived Particularly thinking of the beast, Satan himself, not only the, the, the Antichrist, the beast, but then also Satan himself being so deceived that they could go after the king of heaven. But yet, that is what is described here, this idea then of assembling. The angel cries with a loud voice and assembles to all the birds and say, hey, come. There is this great supper of God, this idea of wrath, this huge picture of massive death that the birds come and pick away at, which everyone who's seen any roadkill understands the picture here is vivid and one of judgment. The imitation is in complete contrast to the joy of a wedding. I mean, there's really, if you think of the, the sadness of, of death and really just even all that goes with, think of the, the birds and, and, and what is pictured here in contrast to, to marriage. It's a massive contrast. The word flesh here is going to be repeated five different times if you're kind of looking at repetition. And the flesh of the kings, flesh of the commanders, flesh of strongmen, flesh of horses, flesh of all men. Everyone, everything will fail in their opposition to God. There is even in the New Testament that idea of the flesh, right? Well, the flesh will be dealt with once and for all. No one's going to no longer live in the flesh. These men who opposed Christ, they chose to walk after the flesh, and now they're literally having it eaten is the picture here. And John turns and he sees all of this. It's kind of a description. If you were to go to Zechariah 14, which we won't take the time to, to but what is the picture? We, we know a little more detail because although we have some idea of this battle. We don't see it all, but it would seem, according to Zechariah 14, that there is an embattlement over Jerusalem. They're fighting over the city when the appearance of the Lord over, um, it comes from the Mount of Olives. He sets his feet down. And the army, this procession, comes with him and takes battle. And it becomes this swift destruction. There's no hiding from it. It happens quickly. And so you see the great supper of God then. It's kind of this action phase of what goes on. And then as they gather, 
we're told in verse 20 and 21, this third phase of which the defeat of the beast happens. We've kind of known it as we've looked forward. In one way, it's obvious, but yet it is good to see it in writing that who wins? And it's not going to be the beast. Rather, they are going to be the preview of what is to come for all those who oppose God. It's just the reality of what the scriptures teaches. Yes, that God saves sinners, but also he is going to judge sinners. And it, what's the difference? Those who put their faith and trust in Christ, who have their sin dealt with, that is the difference. Those who are in Christ, those who are saved by the name, and the only name under heaven or earth that you can be saved by, and those who have not. And so it's an encouragement to those of us, the church, to look and see that the defeat of the beast will happen. And even in this period of time where everyone has gone after the beast and the false prophet has kind of made way with miracles and deception. As he is, he is the antichrist. He's the opposite of Christ, but he will fail. In fact, it says very, would seem swiftly, which would make sense to me. When God decides to act, it's not going to take a long time. And it would seem that the beast is simply immediately seized and the leaders of these kings of the earth are taken. It says, verse 20, the beast was seized and within the false prophet who did not who did the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. We're kind of recalculating or restating what we've seen throughout the Revelation, the, the grand deception that has gone on. And they are thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Kind of continuing back to that great supper of God. But note, the rest that are killed are not immediately thrown into this eternal lake of fire. Throughout Scripture, you have kind of this reference. But this is seemingly a technical term that you see for the first time here in Revelation. Those who are unsaved up to this point have died, yes. But they go to, Scripture off talks about it as, as Hades, the, the realm of the dead. That is a place of judgment. But they await final judgment at what we'll see in coming weeks, the great white throne judgment. The only two thrown immediately are these two, the first. The rest are going to await final judgment. Even Satan himself, we're going to see in chapter 20 next week that he isn't thrown in there yet. Rather, part of God's plan is to put him into the abyss, which many of those demons came out of, before he's released at the end of the thousand years. But the leaders are without their leaders of the earth, or without their leaders of the great ones, the beast and the Antichrist. It seems, the, seems like this battle is swift and quick. Isaiah 11.4 says it this way. It says that, And with the breath of his lips, talking about the Messiah, he will slay the wicked. Eternal judgment is going to begin here. The battle of Armageddon with the beast and the false prophet. A reminder again that judgment is real, even though why not judge everyone at that point? Again, God has a plan. He does it in his own timing. As you look at this return of Christ, if you look at these phases as we kind of see that final judgment, how that bold judgment starts to be um, work itself out with the returning of the conqueror, the, the great supper of God, and the defeat of the beast and the antiprophet thrown into hell, it is a good reminder, as we've seen throughout Revelation, that we have a proper understanding of who Christ is. 
that he is a savior, yes, but he is a judge. He is a warrior. Scripture is very clear. Yes, the word of God states that God so loved the world that he gave his son, right? He loved the world. He gave them his son. All who agree, look towards God, and they they see their sin. They agree with him. They they are hopeless and helpless to do anything in their sin, but they believe that by God's grace and mercy that he sent his son to die in their place, to take their punishment for sin by dying for them. They believe that not only did he die, but that he rose again, proving that sin has been paid for and death has been conquered. They're going to find immeasurable blessing, not only in time, but also in eternity. They're not even going to have to deal with the great white throne judgment because their sin has already been dealt with. And so at the same time, you see that God is a God of salvation, that Jesus is a Savior. You want to understand the the same scriptures, the same, say, John 3.16. The same author of that is the same author of Revelation 19. And it states clearly and plainly, those who reject Christ, the name is access, only name under heaven and earth which you can be saved. They're going to experience judgment without mercy. And it begins here. That's one of those reasons you look at Scripture and you ask, but is hell eternal? And you can't get away as you look at what we're going to see here in 19 and more references to come that it is eternal because the, the crime, as it were, fits, the punishment fits the crime of an eternal offense of God. How foolish it would be to attempt to go against God the Almighty. All the phrases used here, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that he is the Almighty One. If you learn anything from Revelation, you should learn this. You can curse God. You can blaspheme him if you want to. But judgment is coming. And if Satan at his worst and Satan's greatest Demons are so quickly put away with, what chance does anyone have? And the answer is no chance. And the only option is the Psalm 2 option of recognizing who he is and looking back that we would be the ones, I'll read it again, that we would recognize what the psalmist says, you should recognize kings, authority figures, the kings who show insight, that is, they learned... But seemingly the earth has not learned so far in all the judgments. But learn, take warning, judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Humble yourself, that is, kiss the sun, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. It doesn't end with the negativity, as it were. It ends with, hey, learn, because then the last sentence is, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. One of the lessons of Revelation is that he is returning, yes, but you can also find refuge now in him, in Christ, in his first coming and what he's done. And it's just a reminder, as stated here, that he and he alone, no one is going to come in second or third, but he and he alone is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, even as we look towards this moment of your 
return. And we see the picture that is one of a warrior returning who's coming in victory, who is dealing out judgment, that we understand this is only one side of the coin, as it were. We know that there is salvation in Christ. We know that you sent your Son, that you desire all to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And yet these words are here, and this reality is here, that there are those who will reject those who will not repent, even though they see the signs of judgment all around them. May, not be, may that not be true of anyone who is here this morning. They would evaluate their own lives. And do they have a right understanding of the King of Kings? Do they have a proper understanding of Jesus Christ, not only as Savior, but as Judge, and examine their own hearts and their own lives in light of who you are who your son is and what he has done for us. So even now as we sing together, may we be reminded of your holiness, of your otherness, that even it seems that there is a name of Christ written on him which no one knows except himself. You are king overall. You are holy in such a way which we in our sinfulness cannot comprehend. And the only response is not understanding in that moment, but the response is worship. So may we worship you now as we sing together. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen.